Today's episode of the Nerd Byword will take you to faraway places like the sovereign African nation of Wakanda and small town USA. Dave and I will be completing our summer reading programs with the in-depth looks at Superman Rebirth and 2016's Black Panther. The Byword begins now. Welcome into another all-new, all-different episode of the Nerd By Word, the only nerd podcast that isn't losing its collective you-know-what because Spider-Man has a new suit, or three. On today's show, we'll be taking a much-needed reprieve from our tinkering of the Star Wars sequel trilogy after dueling our fates over The Last Jedi. We'll certainly need a week off before we negate all the statements that we made in the previous episode, introduce several new characters in the most haphazard of fashions, adopt the surname of someone we knew for all of 12 minutes, and completely fumble the ball out of the end zone next week with The Rise of Skywalker. No, today, in fact, we will be conducting our fourth installment of the highly acclaimed, at least in our minds, comic book book reports. For those of you who are new to this endeavor... The premise behind this show is that Dave is a mostly DC fan and I am mostly a Marvel fan. We periodically assign each other comic book runs that we enjoy in an attempt to convert, evangelize, or at the very least, expose the other individual to something new from the other side of the publishing field. But first and foremost, it is time for Dave and myself to ensure our journalistic integrity remains intact by heading over to the Daily Planet, in Dave's case, or the Bugle in mine, for some hot off the press. Nerd news. Dave, Sony just can't help themselves, can they? Yeah, this is an interesting story, uh, actually, from uh, Kotaku. And I found this uh, incredibly interesting, uh, especially in light of, you know, the whole constant tirading going on between Sony fans and, and Microsoft fans in the whole console wars. So apparently there's an independent game publisher, Ian Garner, of uh, a developer na- named Neon Doctrine. And he apparently uh, took to social media to kind of just unload his frustration with a um, major games console maker, which he does not specifically name, but which Kotaku has apparently done their due diligence on and seems to verify that this is Sony that he is talking about. And in the course of this tirade, he apparently uh, revealed that independent games developers have to spend at least $25,000 to get any kind of promotion in Sony's uh, online store for their game. And according to Kotaku, uh, they have verified that this can go as high as $200,000. So, you know, you're paying for some basic exposure in the store. Uh, Here's some of the stuff that he said. If Platform X doesn't like your game, no fanfare, no feature, no love, and uh, no ability to manage your games. Uh, He goes on to say that the game's presence uh, on the store is completely based on Sony's evaluation of the product. And I quote here, how is this evaluation done? Do know they don't share that, nor will they share the value they ascribe to my game. Um, He also claims that it is, quote, incredibly difficult to get through the compliance check, uh, which is spread over three generations of back-end software. um, And in short, uh, basically is incredibly frustrated uh, that he and uh, and, and this developer have to spend so much money just to get any kind of listing on the store that is, you know, visible to people who visit the store. Um, It's also very interesting that this, you know, $25,000 to, you know, up to potentially $200,000 that developers are asked to pay is, of course, in addition to the standard 30% of earnings that goes to the platform holder that goes to Sony. So on top of, you know, whatever uh, fee they have to pay up front to get some kind of promotion, some kind of, you know, placement in the store that is prominent, they also have to give 30% of their profits to Sony 
uh, for the pleasure of being, you know, listed in the PlayStation Store. Now, on the one hand, you know, you can understand that there are some things in place to kind of, you know, filter um, indie games a little bit and, and really get people who are serious about publishing indie games because, you know, indie games are flooding the market. I think uh, in a single week, the Switch can get like 30 games that are all indie games being released in a single week. That's a lot of games. And so giving each game, you know, uh, a prominent spot in an online store would be challenging. On the other hand, you know, if you're already taking 30% of all the uh, sales that a small uh, developer uh, might gain, uh, then asking for $25,000 minimum up front just to get a listing that people can actually find easily seems kind of uh, predatory almost. Chris, what's your take on this story? Yeah, so... And I don't want to come across as like some, you know, preconceived anti Sony person, but like this doesn't do anything to win my favor that I would want to, you know, look at becoming a, a Sony consumer of video games. I mean, you know, one of the things that I enjoy most about, um, you know, Microsoft and even to a greater degree with the Nintendo shop is it's it's almost like... Um, like going to like the mobile app store on my phone and finding new games. And it's like almost impossible. It it is impossible to ask of these developers if they're, if they're only charging like a dollar 99 a game, you know, to to come up with, to cough up $25,000. That's just insane to me. Um, And, and, you know, we, we like to pride ourselves on featuring indie creators and, and people who are trying to get their start. And, you know, a lot of the times that's where you have to really, you know, earn your bearings before you go on to bigger and greater things. You know, like there, there are so many people who start, you know, in indie, you know, whether it's comics, whether it's video games or what have you, and then they make their way at at, at a bigger brand. But, you know, unless you're like some trust fund type of kid, I don't see how you can come up with, you know, 25 K just to, just to, you know, get your name out there. That's wild to me. You know, it's also interesting that he uh, singled out quote unquote Sony and the PlayStation store because, well, you know, singled out, he didn't really name them, but by process of elimination, uh, Kotaku apparently said, yep, they're talking about Sony Uh, because that means that on various other platforms, uh, let's say steam, uh, the Epic Game Store, Xbox, Nintendo. Uh, he doesn't have these issues. He's specifically talking about you know one console uh, maker, and and that's Sony. So clearly there are, there must be other systems in place with you know these other companies that are more favorable perhaps to indie games. I don't know for sure, but the fact that he you know specifically went after Sony, I think, is very telling and very interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, what's, what's the old proverb where there's smoke, there's fire. And I think like, this is a trickle down effect for, you know, so much, um, not only of, of Sony's branding, but like even like a lot of, unfortunately their community of, of fans and, and their consumers, like this whole, like thumping of the chest of what I've experienced, at least when it comes to Sony users, it it does, it, it leaves a lot to be desired of this, you know, they don't even participate in E3. They're literally the only big time developer that doesn't like. And so this just kind of seems like, of course, it's Sony, you know, in in my estimation. Yeah. So, Chris, what is your news story this week? Well, uh, Star Wars fans are outraged once more. No, I promise that this is indeed a news story, Dave. Uh, This week, a Lego set featuring Boba Fett's iconic starship was unveiled, but was missing the traditional Slave One moniker. In a subsequent interview, Lego Star Wars lead designer Michael Lee Stockwell stated that, quote, we're not calling it Slave One anymore. Everybody is dropping the name, end quote. It was heavily implied that the everybody listed there was in reference to Disney Studios. He continues, it's probably not something which has been announced publicly, publicly, but it is just something that Disney doesn't want to use anymore. Uh, While neither Disney nor Lucasfilm has publicly uh, commented on the situation, it was reported by the Daily Mail that Disney has held regular meetings with advocacy groups 
in an attempt to flag any potential offensive material for their streaming platform, Disney Plus, since its launch in 2019. This can be evidenced by content warning disclaimers being placed at the beginning of classic Disney productions like Dumbo, The Aristocats, or Lady and the Tramp, to name a few. The lack of public resp- um, the lack of public response of the Supreme Corporate overlords has not delayed the backlash and ire from a certain sect of the Star Wars fandom. A petition to keep the Slave One name is currently gaining popularity on Change.org. In addition, two actors who have previously portrayed Fett are voicing their support for maintaining the moniker in one form or another. Actor Daniel Logan, who played a young Boba in Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, not Crones, inside joke if you've enjoyed that episode (laughs) of ours. Uh, Logan posted a meme on his Instagram story of Jango Fett saying, Stay calm, son. We'll be fine. No one can beat Boba Fett's starship. Mark Anthony Austin, who worked as a visual effects artist on the original Star Wars and portrayed Fett in George Lucas's special edition of A New Hope, gave a much more detailed reasoning for his support of the name, posting to his Twitter account, quote, Slave One, let me start by saying that I hope this isn't a rebranding. I hope this is limited to just a Lego set aimed at kids to new, who are new to the character of Boba Fett. That is my hope. Slave One. It's that all-important one that is key. It's the one that makes all the difference. If you ask somebody what Slave One means, they are either going to be familiar with Star Wars or they are not. If that person is not familiar with Star Wars, then the one will confuse them. They won't know what you are talking about. They know that Slave means Slave One. They know what Slave means, but Slave One could mean anything. They wouldn't know, they wouldn't have an answer to give you. If that person is familiar with Star Wars, they'll tell you exactly what it is. It's Boba Fett's spaceship befitting his profession and his ominous character. I am Boba Fett, and if I don't stand up for Slave One, then who will? Mark, Boba Fett, Austin, end quote. Dave, Star Wars fans are perhaps the most notorious in the galaxy for voicing this their displeasure. However, is defending this moniker really the Sarlacc pit you want to die in? I honestly don't give a crap. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to be facetious here, but you know, of all the things that matter to me about Star Wars, the name of Boba Fett's ship is probably the uh, among the least important. Now, you know, get me wrong, I understand Boba Fett has a lot of fans, but I don't think the name of his ship is in any way, shape, or form defining of the character. I mean, it's not the Millennium Falcon, for crying out loud, which is repeatedly named uh, in the original trilogy. I don't think Slave 1 as a ship is ever named that in the original trilogy. I'm fairly certain that came from, you know, other media at some point. But, you know, you, you, you want to talk about things that frustrate me about Star Wars, you know, there are there are many more things that frustrate me about, about you know, what happened to Star Wars. Uh, you know, listen to our last episode about, you know, The Last <laughs> Jedi and how Luke turned out in that movie. I think that's a little that's a little more pressing than something <laughs> like a ship's name. So, yeah, I really don't care. Uh, they can call it whatever they want to. I mean, if, if they don't want to call it Slave One, I mean, they're the IP holders. They're the rights holders. They can make that decision. And, uh, you know, knock yourself out, Disney. I really don't care. Uh, there are other things you could fix about Star Wars for me, though. I, I think you owe me some good Luke content. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I don't care, Chris. <laughs> it's just it's just really odd that that this is the thing that you choose to campaign behind of all the things. Like you said, I I I tend to concur that I don't remember ever hearing the word slave one, you know, on screen at all. So then why is it this big deal? Like, why is it a thing? I was a huge Boba Fett fan, particularly in high school when when kind of Star Wars fever kind of picked back up uh, with episode three. Um, and I just, I think I even referred to it as Boba Fett's ship. Like, I didn't call it Slave One. I didn't call it anything but Boba Fett's ship. Like, it, it is not common enough in in at least my lingo as, as a pretty significant Star Wars fan that, like, that has any meaning to me. And if if that is, you know, has been determined to to be offensive to someone then change it. What's the big deal? It's it's a name of a ship that we never even cared about until now. Yeah, I concur. I don't care about the, the name of the ship. I just don't. So, you know, 
I'm good either way. Yeah. All right. That wraps up our nerd news segment. Um, sound off your thoughts on social media. You can reach us at nerd by word on Instagram and Twitter. What are your thoughts on the slave one moniker? Should it stay? Should it go? What have you? Um, and what are your thoughts on, on this, uh, PlayStation store, $25,000 minimum. But when we come back from this, our first break, we're going to be hitting you with our comic book book reports for our summer reading. Stick around. All right, we're back for today's Byword Big Talk segment, Homework Part 4, Summer Reading Edition. I assigned Dave Ta-Nehisi Coates' first volume of Black Panther that took place from 2016 to 2018. Dave, just overall thoughts. What did you like most about what you read? I really wasn't quite sure what to expect sitting down with this particular run of uh, Black Panther. Uh, I've not actually read a lot of Black Panther comic books. And my you know main exposure to the character has been the absolutely excellent MCU movie. So you know, based on that, clearly I was interested to learn more. I'm rudimentarily familiar with some of Coates' other you know non-comic book work. And... He strikes me to be a sort of a deep thinker and a bit of a philosopher in a lot of ways. And I think um, based on that, I wasn't quite sure what to expect out of his comic book work. Now, when I started reading Black Panther, I think his inexperience writing comic books, particularly in the first few issues, really came across. And he very much uh, used his philosophical underpinnings, his sort of deep thinker status uh, as a way of informing his writing in the series. And that led to to really two things, particularly in the early uh, run. Number one, um, the world he created was absolutely fascinating. Um, Wakanda really came to life. Uh, Its culture, its people, the good, the bad, the the, the cultural problems that they might face, uh, you know, and it it led to some really interesting questions being asked. The other problem, though, uh, was that it kind of came across a little bit slow uh, in the early goings. But overall, um, I think what I love most about it is just all the culture that he added to to Wakanda. It became a, a real place in a lot of ways in my mind, thanks to the series. You know, what What was particularly interesting to me, and I'm, I'm interested to kind of get your thoughts on this, and, and you absolutely nailed it with the big think piece. Um, he's very famous for, you know, his his commentary on, on social justice, on, on social issues, on particularly, you know, race relations in America as, as particular with the black community in America. What I, what really grabbed me and I totally agree with like the slow start, he was kind of finding his bearings, those first couple issues until he kind of hit the ground running. What I was most fascinated by is that it really kind of was a different type of superhero comic in, it was kind of like a nation building aspect. And, and, and it's a similar uh, to a similar degree. What I find fascinating now about the current X-Men comics, now that you're done running for your life and just fighting for the right to exist, what do you do now after all that is done? And how do you go about building in the nation? What's the best, you know, possibility or, or what's the best strategy to build a nation to govern? What were your thoughts on that? I think it actually uh, tackled a part of the Black Panther character that is, I guess you could say problematic in a modern context. And that is that Black Panther is a king in, in a time period, if you're looking at the modern day, where monarchies are not really absolute anymore. I mean, for the most part, what monarchies are still around uh are similar to what you might see, you know, in England, a constitutional monarchy, or oftentimes monarchs are reduced to figureheads and elected officials are really the people in power running the government. But that's not the case in this fictional country of Wakanda. He is, Black Panther is, for all intents and purposes, an absolute monarch. And the fact that he was willing to examine that, um, I think, speaks volume about uh, volumes about this whole series. It is a complicated issue to in in you know 2020 2021 i think the series started what in 2016 yes um 
it's that's a complicated thing to to point at and say, okay, we're going to have a hero um, who who doesn't believe that the will of his own people matters. Um, and so I think it was a good idea at some point, at least, to confront that part of Black Panther's character and examine that a little bit. And I think Coates did a really good job with that and came to a really interesting conclusion in the series as well, I think. Yeah, and 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 I can't remember. I, I've read both volumes, uh, the twenty eighteen two that just wrapped up with um, you know issue twenty five of the second volume. But what I also appreciate is how willing he was to tackle the idea that you know by popular culture and and for so many people, twenty eighteen's film Black Panther was their first introduction to Wakanda. This kind of idealistic adventure of what would have happened if the African slave trade had never reached a particular country. If, if the black Africans had been able to develop their own technology and just to kind of be develop their own nation. And yet in this run, he is willing to tackle the kind of that ugly underbelly of a, of a nation and its history, even in something that is, you know, so popularly held as precious as Wakanda's. I thought that was fascinating as well. Yeah, and and once you get really into the um, into the second storyline of this first volume, you know, even even Wakanda is not you know completely innocent from you know the notion of pushing out you know the original population and and kind of you know quote unquote colonizing, which I thought was you know a fascinating uh, direction to take that story. And so yeah, I mean there was. Big ideas, big thinking going on in this series. It really made you sit down and, and you know, think. As our, as our students would say, big brain thinking. Uh, yeah, so, exactly. Uh, what do you think could have been better? You know, this this is complicated, really. A, a, a very loaded question for a series like this. Because clearly, you got a very talented writer bringing incredibly smart, big ideas to the table, which is not always the case with, you know, comic books from the big two where everything goes crash and boom. Um, Besides, you know, what I mentioned earlier, that it was a little slow, particularly in the early goings, is that in in the context of all this cultural stuff and everything he did, which all worked wonderfully, um, I think... T'Challa himself sometimes felt like he was taking a bit of a, a backseat uh, to what was actually happening around him. Now, he was very much part of the action, but he did not go as um, as examined as I would have hoped he would have in a series that is named after him, you know, Black Panther. Um, like, if this series was called Wakanda, you know, that would have been a little different. Like, the first volume is divided into two big stories, basically. And the first big story is really resolved thanks to a um, a speech by a secondary character. And then the second big story in this first volume is really resolved thanks to uh, a, a different character, Storm in this case. So it kind of felt in some ways like T'Challa himself was kind of... Um, a little bit too much shunted aside for my taste. I was really interested in the character, particularly after, you know, Chadwick Boseman's excellent performance as the character. But I never in all these 25 issues really got a solid grip on on who the comic book T'Challa is. And I thought that was regrettable. I, I really wanted to know more about the guy. Yeah, that is that is fascinating. You know, as as a fan of you know, strong female leads. It it was like re- super refreshing to see the character of Shuri kind of stand out. And, you know, I, I storm is my religion. So I was always happy to see her featured. In fact, I would, and I've argued this on the show before, she's better featured by Ta-Nehisi Coates in, in this volume and the next uh, in his entire run than most X-Men books. So, um, but it really is interesting when you really think about it. He really does take a backseat to a lot of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it does. it's not necessarily bad for the story that Coates is telling. But if you're coming to the table as somebody who enjoyed, you know, the MCU movie and, you know, you're familiar with Coates and you think he's a good writer and you crack open this book, it is not really the examination of T'Challa that you hope it is. Um, what surprised you the most, Dave? 
You know, actually, uh, sh- you you brought it up. Shuri did. Uh, the, so the character, uh, as shown in the MCU, is sort of this tech genius, which I thought, you know, hey, this is a really cool character. Um, you know, smarter than Tony Stark, for example. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff being thrown around in, in, in those MCU movies. And so I found her to be a fascinating character. Um, and then Coates' run took this entirely different, much more... A spiritual approach to the character, and you know she ends up with these supernatural powers, and she's a she's a griot. She's you know like a the 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 historical memory the of 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 Wakanda, and I found that to be the most surprising interpretation of that particular character. But it totally worked, Chris. I really really liked it. I I, I have to wholeheartedly agree with you. I as as a very spiritual person, um, whether we put that under an organized religion or not. I thought it was absolutely beautiful the way that they that he embraced kind of the spiritual aspects of of you know traditional African culture and I thought that was absolutely fascinating to me. Oh, I totally agree, Chris. Uh, did you run into any continuity or larger universe issues? This is pretty self-contained, if memory serves. But did you have any continuity things that that you really ran into and and kind of obstructed you? I don't think really obstructed. It just, you know, it's fairly self-explanatory, although there is a lot of history referenced, um, particularly, you know, the history of most recent history of Wakanda, you know, a people brought low, you know, they've been conquered, which had never been conquered before. Those sorts of references. So there's references to, you know, Shuri being uh, the Black Panther, which, you know, really made me want to back up and read that particular mm-hmm. volume of Black Panther because she's such an interesting character. Um, so there are references to a lot of things. I also, you know, besides our conversations, I, you know, was not too familiar with the relationship between Storm and T'Challa. So it was kind of surprising uh, in some ex- in some respects that, that she ended up showing up. Um, and really, I think like the, the ultimate villain, of the the second major arc in this first volume was I think an X Men villain which I was not at all familiar with, so there there were some things but I could you know do that old using context clues thing right. to to figure out what was going on but yeah I mean Coates does not you know reject continuity which you know sometimes when you know writers who aren't familiar with the genre of comic books come in and try to write comic books they kind of want a clean slate they don't have to reference the past. Um, but Coates embraced the past very much so. Um, he did still go off and do his own thing. Uh, but, you know, the starting point of his story was very much informed by what came before. All right. Final question, Dave. How do you think reading this text, uh, and you may have hinted at it a little bit, uh, is going to change your reading choices going forward? Yeah, so I'm going to be completely honest, man. I'm not always a big thinker kind of guy when it comes to my comic book fare. Um, so I'm, I'm 50-50 on whether I'm going to jump in Coates' second volume. That being said, I really, really want to jump backwards to the previous volume and kind of read about you know Shuri's tenure as, as Black Panther. I think she's in a lot of ways uh, one of the standout characters of uh, Coates' run, and I would like to see how she got to that particular point. Really interesting character, Chris. Yeah, I I highly recommend the second volume. It's completely, something completely different to borrow, you know, a Monty Python phrase again. They are in space. It's like sci-fi. They also, you know, this came after or pretty close to the release of the film in 2018, I think. They pick up uh, the second volume. So you have the Intergalactic Republic of Wakanda. It's it's very, very different, um, at least kind of the the toys that you're playing with, but a lot of the same big brain thinking. So uh, I, I'm right there with you. Um, I've read some Reginald Hudlin, uh, Black Panther, as far as, you know, as a big Storm fan in preparation for our, our Valentine's Day episode. I read a lot of those back issues about their marriage and relationship and stuff like that. Um, but I'm also interested in, I've heard Christopher P, uh, Christopher Priest's Black Panther run has come highly recommended. So I think I'll dive into that one as well. Yeah, yeah, there there are, you know, I did a little bit of reading online just to kind of familiarize myself with what came before a little bit. And there are apparently several really acclaimed Black Panther runs that I'm going to have to dive into. Yeah, for sure. All right, Dave, it's time to switch it up. Your turn.
Yeah, so Chris, your homework assignment this time was a particular era of Superman. Now, there were two series running uh, side by side at this point. Uh, and that's, of course, Superman and Action Comics. But we went ahead and we jumped into Superman by Peter J. Tomasi with art by Patrick Gleason, one of my all-time favorite Superman eras, immediately after the end of the New 52, the era DC likes to refer to as Rebirth. Uh, in this particular uh, setup, Superman is a little bit older, married to Lois Lane, and they have a preteen son, Jonathan. And uh, this particular family dynamic really um, is something that took off with fans. Uh, the character still around, uh, Jonathan is, although he's been aged up. And of course, I think it's arguable that this is, in a lot of ways, the inspiration for uh, the TV series running on the CW right now. Um, so, Chris, what did you like most about what you read? Uh, I love the heart. And and this, you know, we, we're kind of like a broken record on this, you know, it's hopeful. It, it is inspirational. I mean, this really, that family dynamic um, is just really at its core. And it was really probably the strength. I think Lois as like this badass mom, even though she has no superpowers came across like completely endearing. And it's funny because there was one particular scene where um, you know, Superman and Superboy are having this back and forth and he's kind of being like super angsty about it. But then she comes in and uses his full name and he like straightens up. So I'm always fascinated by by things like that. Um, and I we probably you probably referenced this when we talked several months ago about um, Amazing Spider-Man Renew Your Vows. So this was basically in the same vein. So if you enjoyed you know, something like Amazing Spider-Man Renew Your Vows, you're going to you're going to really enjoy, you know, large swaths of this run in particular. But I I also loved how like quick, quickly it read. I, I blew through this, um, you know, um, I finished it yesterday, but um, I've been pretty busy over the last couple of weeks and months. But when the times I actually focused and read it, I I mean, I just tore through this thing. It was very easy to read, very quick read. And it was just, it made me feel good. It was like some chicken soup, man. Yeah, see, that to me is basically the essence of Superman. And to me, there's really no better character, you know, at the big two, uh, with, you know, the exception of perhaps Peter Parker, than Superman to be a dad. You know, I mean, he, mm -hmm. he already has that, that paternal thing going on with a lot of characters that he interacts with. And he just seems like a dad in a lot of ways. And so making him a father, taking that seriously and really rooting it in the main continuity was one of my all-time favorite things. And you're exactly right. This is always a run that I point to when people ask me, well, you know, what, how is Superman supposed to make you feel? What is Superman to you? you know, well, it's this run. It's hope. It's idealism. It's it's family dynamic. It's, it's love. It's bright. It's hopeful. It, it's everything that I love about Superman. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, there's a reason that Superman and Spider-Man are our two faves. They share a whole lot of things in common down to the primary color scheme. I mean, um, <laughs> so I, I mean, like this was just like picking up another Spider-Man comic for me. Now, what do you think could have been better in this run, Chris? Uh, I got to be completely honest with you. I felt like the small town USA, while it might not have been Smallville in name, I felt like it was a bit of a regression. And not being as well-versed as I'd like to be in Superman comics, I was craving some Metropolis and some of that big city things that that are so kind of iconic when it comes to Superman. So I was missing the big city vibes. You know, maybe it's because, you know, I grew up in a small town. I've, I've seen all I need to see in small town America. I want the big city lights and I, I want Metropolis. Um, also thought, like, it was a little bit hard to kind of maintain the secret identity and like um, as far as, OK, Superman, maybe you can do the spit curl and that kind of suspends disbelief. And but the secret identity, they didn't even do anything with with Jonathan's hair when it came to Superboy. So like that was a little bit kind of distracting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's fair. I think the whole secret identity thing with Superman is one of those things that uh, you just got to suspend your disbelief for in order for it to work. Now, I will say that. um 
just to give you a little bit of context, the reason that I think the small town USA thing was kind of used in uh, the early goings of the rebirth era is because we had just gotten off of the um, new 52 era where they were playing around with the idea of a very, you know, much younger, brasher, more arrogant Superman. And he was firmly rooted in Metropolis at the time. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Now, what surprised you the most about this run, Chris? We, we kind of hinted at it, you know, earlier when it comes to, you know, picking up this book um, or, you know, reading Superman. It, it's pretty, you know, parallel to reading a Spider-Man book. Like it, it felt like, you know, something, you know, in the lines of, of reading that I have before with the favorite character like Spider-Man. So um, also having viewed the first couple of episodes of Superman and Lois, um, I, it, that really helped me as well. Um, you know, we hinted at it earlier. It seems like the, the TV show, even though there are some, you know, nitpicky differences, two kids instead of one, they're older than this, but, um, it it seems a lot of the stuff in the same vein. So that, that made the reading experience really, really easy. And I'm just amazed about how quickly I read it too. Now I shudder to ask Chris, but, uh, it's, it's DC. So I'm sure you'll have a lot to say. Uh, what continuity or larger universe issues did you encounter in this series? Well, Dave, I shudder to answer because um, there was quite a lot. So I just kind of had to, you know, in similarity with the spit girl, I had to suspend a lot of disbelief um, or belief. I don't know. But like the whole setup at the beginning, you explained it to me in like a well, you know, well-written paragraph Um in, in text message about like kind of one had died or something like that. The new 52 is ending. Yeah. I was like, you know what? Let's just buckle up and roll with it. So um, also my, my familiarity with the character of Superman is limited to um, like, a, I've seen most of the justice league cartoon um, and, you know, just pop culture. So I know about Lex Luthor I know a little bit about Bizarro, but any of those other rogues gallery uh, is absolutely new to me. So I had to do a quick Google search on Manchester Black, for example. Um, that was a new one, but that you know that was a, that was an easy one. So the biggest the biggest one was just different Supermans, different surnames, all of that. I was just like, I'm just going to roll with it. And you know that's absolutely fair. Um, I'm a big fan of DC's rebirth initiative and the changes that it brought to the line. Um, but the transition was not without, you know, general bumpiness. And so the notion of instead of just kind of like, you know, starting new stories and moving forward, the idea of, well, we're going to go ahead and do a whole story where the new 52 Superman dies. And then the Superman from the previous continuity shows up and basically takes his place. I can see how that could be extremely confusing for uninitiated readers. However, if you're willing to look past that, I think there's still a lot to love in this particular series. Oh, absolutely. Now, how do you think this uh, reading this particular series and you did the first 25 issues will change your reading choices going forward? Well, are there, let me, let me ask, are, are there more in the rebirth era? Oh gosh. So, uh, there are, uh, so you read the first two uh, collections, I believe. Right, there yes. are, yeah, there are two more collections from okay. uh, to, from Tomasi and Gleason, and then there are, I think, another four collections that are the series running parallel to this, which was Action Comics, which was not as quite as focused on the family dynamic, but uh-huh. was also really, really, really good. Uh, it basically features Superman having to work with Lex Luthor, who's decided he wants to be a hero himself, and their interactions are absolutely priceless. So if you're into you know this era of Superman, you have potentially another six volumes of this to read. Yeah, I'll definitely probably check those out. Um, I'm, I'm definitely... It, it definitely hooked me. Like I said, I would like to move away from the small town stuff. So um, hopefully we'll get there at some point. I'm also, I kind of want to go from here to current. I want to, I want to start keeping up with this character because it's, it's something that really resonates with me. So um, it's, it's probably one of my biggest regrets as far as, you know, reading and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Detective comics is a Batman thing and action comics is a Superman thing, right? 
Yes, that's that's what okay, DC so has done typical, for several years now. Okay, yeah. so that's a typical thing. Yeah, I definitely want to. I don't know how long it's going to take me, but that will be a goal that I have going forward is to get current as far as Superman comics go, because this is a character that resonates with me, that really hits home, um, and and definitely something that I want to get caught up on. I don't know if I want to go back and read a whole bunch of old stuff. I definitely am not interested in the New Fifty Two based on our conversations and and what I've seen a little bit of. That that doesn't uh, that is not appealing to me. Um, anything that even hints towards a nasty Superman seems antithetical to me. So. Um, yeah, I'm definitely excited to just binge a whole bunch of, of recent and modern Superman stuff, though. Then I will just say that the road to the current uh, incarnation of Superman runs through Bendis' run on Superman, which is one of the most divisive runs on the character, I think, in recent memory. So, good luck. <laughs> I also really want to get into Justice League, but there we go again. You know, you say that. I, I, I kind of feel, I, to be honest, I still have, um, and, and maybe this is a more feasible thing. I don't know how feasible it is. It's a lot, but I, I really need to go back and read um, Morrison's JLA. I really need more Morrison stuff. UX-Men was great for me. Um, so I really want to go back and, and get, you know, hit the ground running when it comes to Justice League. I will also uh, point out, we've talked a lot about Patrick Gleason and his fantastic artwork currently oh, yeah. on, on Amazing Spider-Man. Um, I think Gleason's work on this series is absolutely phenomenal as well. Absolutely. And he, although I'm not the biggest fan of dropping uh, Superman's trunks, because I think it just kind of turns the his suit very, very blue, sort yeah. of, you know, almost mo- monochromatic a little bit. Um, I think Gleason's take on a trunkless superman is probably the best version of that particular suit that i've seen and even here's an addendum to um you know question number one what i like the most the art was absolutely stunning throughout every single issue um you know in addition to gleason um i I can't recall the other artists off the top of my head, but I, I thought every, every, every issue brought it like there. And there were some significantly different art styles between, between the different artists, but I think it all clicked for me. It all worked. I love the, the goofiness and the awkward preteen nature that they, they drew, um, that they drew John with. I thought that was really fun. So um, I'm not sure how I'm going to feel probably along the same lines that you do about, although I am a fan of teenage superheroes, it's going to be weird to see him randomly aged up. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to feel about that, but um, uh, the the art was just absolutely phenomenal. Um, The, the um, spoiler, if you haven't read this, the, the townspeople turning into aliens was a, a, a really wild revelation. Um, but I, I, I really enjoyed most of that arc. It was, it was a little bit weird for that one, but like even, even, even so the art throughout, even, even including that part was just phenomenal. Yeah. I'm really glad you enjoyed it, Chris. All right. That wraps up our byword big talk. Do you have any suggestions on comic book runs that we haven't tackled yet for our future assignments that you would like us to read, hit us up on social media. Again, that's at nerd by word on uh, Twitter and Instagram or individually, perhaps at that nerd, Dave and that nerd, Chris on both socials as well. When we come back from our final segment, we're going to be hitting you with two more nerd commendations. All right, we're back for our final segment. Think of this like a three-course meal. Let's let's talk about nerd news is kind of our uh, appetizer, if you will. The big talk is the entree. And now we get to the dessert round. We are here for... Dave, what are you nerd commending for us this week? Uh, would you believe me if I told you it's about Superman? What? <laughs> well, so I finally uh, got on uh, HBO Max and uh, watched the uh, most recent Superman animated movie, Superman Man of Tomorrow. Uh, here's the official tagline from HBO Max. Meet Clark Kent, sent to Earth as an infant from the dying planet Krypton. He arrived with as many questions as the number of light years he traveled. Now a young man, he makes his living in Metropolis as an intern at the Daily Planet, alongside reporter Lois Lane, 
while secretly wielding his alien powers of flight, super strength, and X-ray vision in the battle for good. Follow the fledgling hero as he engages in bloody battles with intergalactic bounty hunter Lobo and before fighting for his life with the alien Parasite. The world will learn about Superman, but first, Superman must save the world. Now, this sucker, Chris, is good. It very much captures the things that we have talked about from the Rebirth Superman era, even though this is really an origin story. It's bright, it's hopeful, it's optimistic, it has a very distinct Superman that is very recognizable in how he behaves, you know, his thoughts, his actions. This is, you know, Superman distilled down to his essence, basically. And it is just absolutely joyous to watch. They do some really neat stuff that I don't think I've seen done before with uh, this um, particular version of Superman's origin. In particular, they tied closely to Martian Manhunter, uh, that both him and Martian Manhunter are kind of hiding on Earth in secret as the last of their kind. Um, and then they sort of, you know, connect due to the uh, events of the movie. And so that that interplay between Martian Manhunter and Superman, before Superman is even Superman, before he even has the suit, is, I think, really interesting. It's also really fun to, to see his early interactions with this particular version of Lois Lane. Uh, this version of Lex Luthor is really uh, well put together as well. Uh, the voice cast overall is just really, really strong. Um, I was very, very impressed, for example, with Zachary Quinto, our new age Spock, as Lex Luthor. Uh, he was a spot-on voice of Lex Luthor. Really made me think maybe the guy needs to shave his head and tackle that one live action. Um, so for an animated film, I really, really love this. I think it's absolutely worth your time to sit down and watch. And hot take of the day, I think I got better Superman vibes off of this than I did uh, of Man of Steel. In my book, Man of Tomorrow is superior to Man of Steel, Chris. Yeah, you you hit the nail on the head. I I just did a quick you know search of the voice cast, and you know I'm I'm a big fan of of acting talent, um, you know, even voice casts. And I am absolutely here for this. I've heard nothing but great things about Darren Chris as a voice actor. Alexandra Daddario is, is a home run as well. Um, I really enjoyed her as, as, as regrettable as a lot of the Percy Jackson, uh, a lot of the Percy Jackson films were, I thought she was one of the, the people kind of carrying it on her shoulders. So I'm excited to see her involved here. Zachary Quinto. I will follow that man to the ends of the earth. I think that he was the far and away, the strength in addition with Chris Pine as as uh, you know the new age cast of Star Trek, he was absolutely out of this world fantastic in Invincible as the kind of quasi nefarious robot. Um, so I absolutely loved him there. Um, Martian Manhunter, I'm, I'm there. Um, also for Agents of Shields fans, Brett Dalton, uh, you'll know him as Grant Ward from uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is in here as Parasite, it looks like. So I'm definitely checking this bad boy out. Yeah, and they just did a great job overall. There's a great moment near the end of the movie, not you know to spoil anything, but it really leans into the, this idea of last of our kind. Um, you know, with Superman, with Martian Manhunter, and even with Lobo, who, you know, even in the comic books is the last of his kind as well. And so you have these three characters who are basically what's left of their particular civilization um and it's just there there's a, a lot of poignancy to this uh particular animated movie that i really really enjoyed chris all right what are you nerd commending this week my man well i'm going kind of mainstream forgive me but uh i i'm loving loki man on disney plus uh it's similar to wandavision in that it's something completely stylistically new and different in my opinion, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, while I enjoyed it, I felt like it was too much of a rehash of something like Captain America, the Winter Soldier. And oddly enough, for me at least, it didn't do enough to feature Sam Wilson front and center until the very end, and that was too little too late. Um, now, Loki, in contrast, uh, similarly to WandaVision, we're back to heavy and reckless, uh, reckless speculation week after week about what's what could happen next. Also, like getting it on Wednesday. You don't have to wait till Friday. I know it's still a week in between episodes, but it's something, especially throughout the summer uh, with vacation and everything, it gives you something to look forward to right there in the middle of the week. I love that there's genuine mystery behind this as opposed to just go get the quote unquote bad guys like Falcon the Winter Soldier was. 
Um, and again, I don't want to seem like I'm dogging Falcon the Winter Soldier. I just appreciate the other two more. Um, I'm starting to prefer this version of storytelling, if I'm being honest, as opposed to one big blockbuster movie. Taking six to eight episodes to tell us a, a much more complete story, I think, is my preference now. Um, we have more time to spend with these characters and really dig into what makes them tick, particularly new characters. Um, another thing that I appreciate about this show, and I know I'm a broken record, but it's pushing the entire universe of the MCU in a new direction. We're going forward and discovering new things instead of retreading the same old stuff. Um, I also love that this show really proved me wrong. When it was first announced, I thought I was excited. The teaser was fun. Uh, but I, I was worried that it was just going to be Tom Hiddleston doing his enchanting Loki thing. And that absolutely is the case. But it is not a one-trick pony like that. It's not the whole shebang. That's not the only thing about this show that's great. Uh, you know, that certainly was the case. But the new characters that have been introduced, you know, namely Sophia DiMartino, Sylvie, Owen Wilson's Mobius, Gugu Mabatha, Roz, Ravana, Renslayer, and Wunmi Mosaku's Hunter B-15 have been incredible and shined in their own right. It's absolutely fascinating. Absolutely love it. Loki blends like this Mad Men style motif of like 60s and 70s kind of architecture and kind of kind of melodramatic thing with, you're going to love this day, some Doctor Who vibes of time travel, bonkers reality, warping elements. And I just can't wait for more. I think we've got two more episodes uh, the fourth episode this past week really was was ending on a cliffhanger, really had some really cool new details that were introduced. And, and I'm super stoked for the last two episodes. But yeah, Loki on Disney Plus, new episodes Wednesdays. Um, I'm, I'm absolutely loving the ride, man. Yeah, I've heard the Doctor Who comparison a lot, and I'm really, really looking forward to checking this one out. I have not had a chance to really sit down and watch any of the episodes yet, but I'm not surprised that this sucker is a home run. If you add, you know, time travel, which is one of my absolute favorite tropes in, in science fiction, and, you know, the, the effortless charm of Tom Hiddleston's Loki, I think that's pretty much a winning formula. So I'm there for it as soon as I can, you know, find the time to sit down and actually watch an episode. Yeah, for sure. And also, like, at least visually, it's, it's it's along the lines of something like Doctor Strange, like the outer space kind of warpy type thing. So it's it's super gorgeous. Um, and it's a heck of a lot of fun. And, a, and like I said, it's a lot of speculation. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely there for it. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to be here next week as we finally mercifully put the sequel trilogy to bed with the rise of skywalker i don't know if i'm looking forward to rewatching this one dave i i don't know i think we're <laughs> going to have a lot to say this, that might be an, uh, a a king-sized episode just to kind of figure out how to fix that mess of a movie at least we're going to be on the same side i i feel if you like what you hear be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform uh you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify amazon iHeartRadio or nerdbyword.com. Be sure, again, I've hit this a couple of times, but hit us up on social media, nerdbyword on Instagram and Twitter individually, at that nerd Dave, at that nerd Chris individually. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.